Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's episode is about data gravity and specifically a check-in on data gravity to see how generative AI or conversations about metadata and thinking on data lakes impacts data gravity thinking in general. Uh, as you might know, data gravity is this concept that was uh, has been propagated by Dave McCrory, a friend of mine, um, who uh, defined this idea that data itself, its aggregation of data, its use in transit of data has a gravitational effect. It pulls more data to it, it also pulls workloads towards it. Uh, and we define that, but we really jump right into impacts uh, of data gravity in this conversation. So we, we cover a lot of interesting ground around generative AI, metadata, uh, things that we've been talking about quite a bit. Uh, this is not, you'll notice, a conversation that I'm in. Um, and uh, it's always fun to watch, uh, for me, to watch the group have a fantastic, fascinating, and interesting discussion um, uh, in my absence, which I always enjoy hearing. I know you'll get out a lot from it. I um, uh, regularly charter a boat in the San Juans and then oftentimes go down the Hood Canal. And uh, we were leaving in the morning, so we stayed at my parents' house. They live uh, just south of uh, Bangor. And we were leaving in the morning in the, the boat, and all of a sudden, two Navy um, patrol boats came up with the 50 cals on the, the bow of the boats. And they're like, stop, halt, what are you doing? I'm like, whoa, I was going up the Hood Canal. And they're like, well, you're violating the two kilometer zone with a submarine i'm like what the submarine it's right up around the corner so we had to hang back and wait and the sub doesn't go very fast so we were late getting to our next stop that day i don't know that we actually right. have submarines although i'm sure we do we do uh i see them regularly no are you feeling better joanne i'm in canada Shane. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> oh, can it? That's right. <laughs> yeah, you guys don't, do you? Um, well, I think there's there's like five or six somewhere in the world. Yeah. But it's not like so I, you know, I mean, I've been in San Diego at, at the naval base and all that sort of stuff. I've been in NORAD. I worked for NORAD for a while earlier in my career, so I can't say anything about it other than that, but irrespective. <laughs> No, when I hear, you know, boats and submarines and 50 caliber machine guns, and I kind of go, yeah, okay, we don't have any of those. <laughs> Next. <laughs> Although um, I did the uh, Blackball Ferry from Port Townsend to Victoria on Vancouver Island um, last oh, yeah. fall, I think it was. And we were leaving Victoria, coming back home. And um, I'm, I'm tied into the maritime industry because my parents are uh, commercial salmon uh, fishing in Alaska. And so one of the apps I have, it shows the AIS data, which is the GPS boat positioning data. And I'm looking around, there's like a whole bunch of really big boats and they're like all military. I'm like, what the heck? So I pull up the AIS data and it's the New Zealand Navy. Yeah. I'm like, what the heck is the Kiwi Navy doing here? And then I start looking around more and there's like a whole bunch of Canadian Navy and they're in the middle of uh, warfare exercises, inner uh, service uh, naval warfare exercises all going on around us in the 
uh, as we're cruising through on the black ball ferry and then the helicopters are going by and they're doing strafing run, you know, practice strafing runs, not using any real or dud lounge, but it was, it was pretty fun. Um, yeah. So I'm I sure have that... seen that the Canada does have a Navy presence. No, no, no. We definitely have a Navy. There's no question about that. I was only joking about the subs. But, <laughs> you know, you know, the Canadian war games when, when they're played with um, other nations are like, excuse me, would you mind moving your boat out of our way? Thank you kindly. <laughs> oh, go in front. Sorry. It's, it's a very so, polite. So sorry we got in the way. Yeah. So sorry. I've been tasked with shooting you right now. <laughs> Yes. Um, awesome. <laughs> well, we've kind of rounded up a fair number of the um, usual uh, suspects that I'm used to seeing here. Uh, so I thought I'd kick things off with us. Um, as always, um, I assume Rob let you guys know. Um, and by the fact that I'm here, usually is the first signal if he didn't tell you, but Rob is flying right now. And uh, he says that today's topic is data gravity and um, have a sort of series of questions to prime the pump, so to speak. Um, but it was just curious if anyone wanted to start on the topic now, or if you want me to kick in with some of those questions and, and get the thread rolling. We, we've well, talked about data credit in the past, but, uh, right. but perhaps it would be good to have a reminder of the context under which we were uh, Rob thought that yeah because it's a heavy topic har 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 um to tackle so some of the like some of the the primary things he was wanted to chat about was um well there there's another unintended pun uh chat gpt does chat gpt change uh data gravity is it and how did, would it change data gravity in in terms of um the topic it's afflicted by data gravity. Yeah, um, it, it does. Like ChatGPT does not use the most recent data, so it it, right. it has a curated language model. Um, so as a result, uh, right? Yeah, that there's some data locality there. Yeah. Right. And and if you were building a you know a specialized model you might use some index of data gravity to kind of determine what you were going to select or from what body of data you're going to select to do training but to actually have impact on data gravity I, nothing nothing jumps out right now um i guess the question is is there something about data gravity that is the kind of the location or the placement of data wells that a a model might a, a, a generative model might use as an as some sort of an indicator or an index or a weighting for data, but um, to actually think about it impacting data gravity doesn't I, doesn't jump out at me i agree i, I don't think I, I i don't see chat gpt being useful in any uh in any manner to bring your data closer to your workload like the, the data is still work 
ChatGPT pulls it from. It, it's right. Yeah. So my take on it is similar in that um, individual external use of ChatGPT services it shouldn't have much effect. Um, for a ChatGPT company, data gravity is critically important. Um, but that's you know a per company solving a problem for their training sets because 2000. Oh my God, my brain well, is actually, not Shane, capable of calling the quick, details. Yeah, Shane, quick question. Are we talking mm -hmm. about chat GPT or are we just talking about GPT in general and generative? I, I would, yeah, I would say, I would probably broaden the topic a little bit more specifically in terms of uh, chat, chat GPT, AI in general, sort of um, artificial intelligence or any AI derived sort of technology, which I would lump um, chat GPT under there are different mo data models that are used for them, but effectively the same principles, um, that derive a different outcome. Um, in 2000, I think it um, goes back to somewhere around 2008 to 2012, I worked for a company called rule space and we were doing AI, um, training models for, um, we we're scraping the web and our company's goal was to provide uh, language and content classification of the web. And so we would train very specific AI engines that were trained to understand uh, specific language um, being spoken, written human language, as opposed to scripted text, uh, functional programming languages. Um, so English, German, you know, Russian, Chinese, Japanese, et cetera. And then within a given language, um, classify websites based on language and then content categories. And so um, we did a lot of AI training, which at the time was, you know, ho-hum. It's really actually quite, quite boring work, but, but it's now sexy <laughs> 15 years later. Um, and so one of the things that we always wrestled with was data gravity from the perspective of, um, you know, there's a lot of data that's required to train um, different um, AI models against. Uh, in this case, it's not chat GPT is a very focused sort of solution in terms of um, pulling a web page, scraping a web page, uh, classifying it. So we had to retain um, effectively, you know, a spidering content of websites. And we retained all of those websites that we would train against and then make classification decisions against. And then we would run the classification engines across the internet and then retain all of that as databases of um, output from the trained AI bots uh, and the results of each of the different language category pair bots that were trained specifically for a given language in a given category. Um, and that was a huge amount of data um, back then. And, you know, the internet has exploded in terms of content since then dramatically, particularly with a lot of multimedia stuff, providing a lot of heavy change to it. And then you start talking about AI training over images or video, and that's a significant amount of storage capacity and processing capacity you have to deal with. How do you start filtering that? Pardon? How do you start to filter that to reduce the amount of uh -huh. storage? Uh, so, and... 
so at the end of the day, um, there are two sets of primary data. There's the data that we use to train the bots and the engines that actually would go out and spider the web um, and then make classification decisions on the spider data of the web. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. And the, the two elements to that were the training data sets and then the temporary cache data from spidering websites making a decision at which point we then threw away that data. And then it just becomes a database result after that. Um, the training data sets were very important um, and fluctuated in size um, dramatically depending on the language and the, the um, uh, category. Because some categories are very broad and they require a huge amount of training to be more um, accurate. Some categories sure. are very specific and they're easier to train for. Um, I would almost I, I would almost ask what, what's probably a really stupid question, but why wouldn't you use the specific to train the larger in the training models? Could you yeah, could, could you rephrase that? Take the specific training models and apply mm -hmm. them to the context. Yeah, and so in this case, the, the context would be the scraped website um, from the spiders. And then okay. we, you know, we had pools, pools of machines that did that. And then those were temporary um, caches. Effectively. So that's what you were getting I rid mean, of. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, and then those would be, those would be um, preempted out of the cache. Uh, but maintaining, you know, that a lot of times that fluctuated a lot because sometimes we had to pull lots of websites. You would often. We also also did uh, inference based on links. So I don't know if you remember um, back in the 2000s, mid 2000s, there was a sort of, um, and I just blanked on the name. It's the link um, ring, like a link ring. And so you you could actually you would have a ring of links that all referred to each other, and and based on the inference, you could trust the sites that you go to because it's essentially a cooperative group about a specific topic. Um, it was an earlier day's way of trying to group uh, uh, websites of interest together and mm -hmm. you know, website operators would use link rings to uh, refer each other to different sites and also helps with in the early days with the you know, rising in the search results because that's one of the indirect inferences that the search engines use is relevancy based on number of links to or out of your site to other similar sites. Yeah, that, so. that, that was in the pre-Google days when, for example, Yahoo or Alta Vista were uh, mm -hmm. still the, the, the primary ways of uh, discovering content is that you had to be in, in, in one of those. It also, uh, I, I, out of that came also the idea of web of trust, which did I mean didn't take off for reasons that are obvious to us now. But uh, <laughs> back then <Right>. it was <laughs> uh, they yeah. released uh, academically uh, and uh, yeah. well, an idea it was the discussion. It was too e it was too easy to game. Is uh, if you you know so that yeah there were a lot of reasons why it didn't work, but. Yeah, um, right. I guess the question there there are two. If if one were to 
kind of separate or kind of put into buckets the kinds of AI models that are being developed. You've got the generative models, and then you've got the, the more analytic and uh, predictive, different kind of prediction um, models. Uh, for example, um, actually recognition, you know, the difference between looking at, uh, you know, looking at an image and saying, is that a dog or a cat versus deciding what the next, you know, the, the most successful uh, next utterance should be. Those are kind of fundamentally different in the way you, you build them. And the the issue, and I'm, I'm sure Klaus has some some good stories on this one, but the issue in my mind would be um, how do you reduce the mass of data that you need to train a particular model for a for a uh, a specific kind of content if you were going to train uh, for example the open ai da vinci model um or programming languages you know which is quite good and, and uh, it, it's very useful how do you do that in such a way to um, reduce the the corpus of data, the corpus of uh, programs that you have to look at, and does data gravity give you any good hints as to where to look for it? Uh, yeah. So stepping back a little bit, so the the, the two approaches that that you were talking about, generative versus analytical, in in academic circles, those are typically described as either natural language processing or natural language generation versus machine learning. Right. Um, as far as the training corpus is, con is concerned, um, the answer will depend on who you ask. Um, there, are, there are those who swear by stochastic models, and, and in which case, the larger your training model, the better. And then there are those who prefer uh, procedural models. And I am my, myself in the, in the later camp. Uh, I will I will totally recognize that stochastic models are currently more accurate. Uh, and just because of the large, the sheer volume of, of data that they have on input, they, they can become more accurate. Uh, my, uh, my dislike of stochastic models, however, is that the accuracy plateaus. And a lot of the work done in the last 20 years on stochastic models has been just to nudge the accuracy up, not even by a percent point, but like by a hundredth of a percent point. Um, and I see all of this as essentially as wasted effort myself. Like, like it again. Like you, you're hitting a ceiling, and and, and you're just trying to to chip away at the at the bedrock there. And and it's, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. It, sometimes you 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 will make a little bit of a, of a, of a of an improvement, but it's it's not going to be a paradigm shift. Um, 
the the large the the large language models that, that we're seeing with, with ChatGPT, because they um because they bring in some uh procedural capabilities in there in terms of like the like this all started like geez, what was more than a decade ago now with with TensorFlow mm-hmm. uh on 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 inference models that are large inference models as opposed to just very small rule sets. Um the so we're we're starting to see a an intermeshion of the two approaches where you have not just the large data set that is required for your stochastic learning, yes. but also a mutable um, analytical model that uh, that has a constant feedback loop back to itself uh, to uh, to change uh, its response. Um, th- this, of course, has its own issue in terms of like, well. How do very how do you verify that what is being produced is accurate? And, and as we can see with like the the hundreds and dozens of uh, of of articles about ChatGPT coming out, like yeah, it, it's an actual problem. Um, but um, I mean, in order to for it to become generalized, like usable in a generalized matter. Um, it has to happen. You, you just cannot write rules manually fast enough to do it. As to how this will, might affect data gravity, um, I don't know. Uh, like I don't, I don't, I don't even know if it will. Uh, to me, data gravity uh, is something that is significantly removed from um, from generative models. So. Yeah. Um, I mean, that there might be a connection there that, that I'm missing. Uh, but uh, personally, I I think that um, that that things are going to continue to be localized. Um, so if, if data come like that, that, there's no there's no way that uh, um, that a model will will help you move data around faster. And, and data gravity ultimately is like the, the, the concern is bringing the data closer to the computation. Um, and, and with generative models, you have massive computation requirements that are locally, localized, uh, and you, you need to bring the data closer to it uh, if if you want a faster response. So if anything, it, it, it would make data gravity worse. Yeah, well, it would increase the it, it would make the data wells deeper if you want to think of them that way. What yeah. were some of the other questions that that Rob left Shane? Because I think the the GPT and and it's kind of a I don't know. Many threads here going on. Um, uh, so, what about data lakes in general? So, you actually brought up a, a good question about data lakes. Um, how are data lakes 
changing thinking around data gravity itself, um, particularly in public versus private sort of uh, use areas. I, I kind of see them. I kind of see them as a a ham-fisted approach to to trying to work around data gravity itself. Like mm -hmm. it, okay. Like it, it, if data gravity is a problem, you your your instinct is to put all of your data in one place so that you you know where your computation needs to be, and that's ultimately a data lake. Like it's just like you dump all of the, your data in in one location, and it just commingles there. Mm -hmm. Um. I I think it is barely good enough for planet scale data processing. Um, once you reach to interplanetary scale, or, or or even just as far as let's say half the distance to the moon, your the latency is going to be so big that your data lake is not going to work anymore. Well, so I see sort of a, a, a different side to that latency story and that data lakes in some respects are about latency and control over large quantities of data. Um, just, just because of the problem of processing and managing data, if it's distributed, you're going to have latency problems. You're going to have connectivity problems, you're going to have management problems. It's significantly harder to um, manage far-flung distributed data. Uh, from a perspective of Azure data, how do we say, the amount of data that you have grows, data lakes become more important because you can more carefully control in an ideal world. Um, contracts at the operational level for consumption of that data. So things like latency and access to it and storage capacity. So underlying operational problems are part of what I see driving data lakes more so than just um, co-locating it as a solution. Although I, I feel that that is a bit of a, a reason for it because um, Distributed, you know, file systems, distributed, distributed data storage is very hard to get right. And well, I've rarely ever seen it done right. <laughs> yeah, well, it, to your point, it's hard. But it, I guess one of the questions there is, you know, kind of the, the, the notion of a data lake, you know, as Klaus characterized it was, you know, throw everything in there so that you know that it's available to you, you know, magically, it'll be there for you when you need it. In point of fact, you know, most of the, the first data lakes turned into swamps because there was so much um, duplicative data sets. There were, um, you know, there were difficulties knowing what was the most author authoritative version of some data data sets. And so in, in point of fact, kind of increased data gravity in a data lake or represented by a data lake could happen because 
A, you've got more distinct and worthwhile data being thrown into it, or it could be your your organization is sloppy and you're applying no, no filters to the data. And so you're just throwing everything in there, hoping magically that you'll be able to find it when you when it comes time. And you know, it's like saying, um, in this particular case, uh, there's another dimension to you know, to be considered besides strictly data gravity or an, an indicator besides strictly data gravity, and that is um, kind of the level of deduplication or the level of um, I'll call it data mastery that's going into the data lake. So, I mean, data gravity, I think for the most part has been used as a as a way of, let's just say in, in my estimation, when you think about data gravity, you're thinking about it's the utilization of data and you know it's the place where you bring computation whether you um can develop certain kinds of um output a lot of it is based on stochastic and statistical uh, analyses so um i guess I'm, i i kind of feel like you have to kind of turn all of this around what what is the what's the value of thinking about data gravity is it going to kind of tell you or give you hints as to where you should locate a data lake or a, a data set? Is it um, is it helpful in in architecting or optimizing any approach you take to distributing data? For example, if we're we're talking about data gravity and edge compute. And they seem to be kind of uh, at odds, sometimes at odds with one another. What what's the what is what is the consideration of data gravity going to do to you there? Well, like you know, it's funny because you you took the thought right out of my brain, and the only way I I'm having a hard I'm struggling with this because. I'm going like, well, okay, I could see it for distributed. It would make sense to me in a distributed environment that you want to have the data as close to the source and consumption as possible. So throw it in an edge environment or a highly distributed environment. I could see it that way. Um, but I can't quite wrap my head around it in other contexts as to why this would be really important. Well, if at the you, stage of the game, in in a lake scenario, for example, yeah, I mean, um, I'd be drowning or called well, Nessie. <laughs> well, the we we should also consider that the antithesis of data lake is data portability. So, in, in sure. that sense, it's it's not just about volume either. For example. Uh, look at um, identity providers. Your, uh, let's say you use Google OAuth or like OAuth with Google. Your that means that your identity is now now has significant data gravity. 
because it's bound to to Google now. You, you cannot pick it up and put it in Okta or, or Azure without significant effort, which again, like it's fighting against the gravity. Um, so this has not, not only computational impact and in, in that, yes, you, you need to bring your data closer to, to your, your workload. Uh, but it also means that you're now creating dependencies. So if you have, like, if you have a data lake, um, you, your, your edge then becomes dependent on, on that lake, as opposed to having several data, I guess you call, call them puddles if you're gonna, keep sticking with this metaphor um right. and I mean, yes and there's a there's a reason why you want those puddles i mean if we're talking about um iot in particular you yeah. you're not talking about the use or the collection of data you're not try, trying to bring data well in a way you are um it's the you know the tightness of the of the kind of the closed loop. I'm monitoring some device. Uh, could be a manufacturing process. Could be some kind of sensor. I want to retain the data nearby because I'm uh, I'm doing some sort of um, analysis of the data as a stream. And I'm trying to control a process. I'm trying to control the temperature in some some sort of um, like a cracking tower. If I'm if I'm in the petroleum business of some sort, the whole point there is um, if um, if I move that data too far away, I've got a latency problem. I've got a you know a an availability problem, and so forth. So there are there are situations that actually demand a certain kind of data distribution, and then what you're then what you are having to deal with is um, all right. To the degree that data is also required in in a composite for some sort of centralized or collection to see the entirety of all of the all of the edge nodes what do i do about that how do i how do i manage that and it starts to be a, a kind of a multifactorial problem so again data gravity is a is an index of some sort it's a it's an indicator and um, what it says is the, the architecture or the use utilization of the data is going to kind of dictate what is the most um, reasonable or an optimal optimal kind of data distributions yeah it, it's a sliding scale like uh, okay. and, and we we have several um philosophies at, at odds here so like on on the extreme left we have data siloing which we know is a problem because then the data is completely disjoint. You don't know how to relate it. On the extreme right, we have 
I, I guess we can we can put it in like closer to the extreme, right? Um, which has its own problems also. Again, like daily gravity is one, uh, but also if you put everything in, in, in one big vessel, well, then the, the impact of a problem becomes bigger as well versus a distributed model, let's say. And I mean, this is this is like real life. I'm, trying, I'm doing a real life comparison here to like say, like oil tanker ships where like you don't just put all the oil in a, in a, in a in a, in a big hole, like you, they, you have it compartmentalized so that the impact of it sloshing around uh, doesn't break your vessel apart. Uh, the same thing again happens with with data lakes. Like if if you just dump everything in one place and don't curate it, don't uh, don't sort it out. Um, right. You, uh, as you mentioned before, like it, it's going to turn into data swap. There, there there's going to be um, your data is going to be useless. Um, right. So you have you know, to find the, the right balance between uh, segregation and uh, interoperability. This is becoming much more of an architectural discussion than uh, yeah. than the relationship of, of of gravity to anything. I mean, I'm I'm looking at distributed and federated as okay. So take your lake and take your little puddles. Put them all together, connect them all, and Bob's your uncle in in a way. It, it's like the hybrid model that would probably be akin to, and it's a bad analogy, I know. Don't shoot me for it. Multi cloud. Now, in in order to to have a workable hybrid model, you need to have uh, at least a consistent schema. So, uh, so that is great if your data is structured, like for example, yeah. time series, which is the poster child for distributed data. Um, right. But once you start again with, with things like language models and uh, and so on, well, like the the one corpus is going is going to be significantly different from another one, but depending on, on who produced it uh, and, and well, how it was scraped, what metadata you collected from it. And, um, well, not only metadata that yes. you collected, it's metadata that you're distributing as opposed to the primary data. So this is, this, is, this is kind of one of the, this is the sneaky ways you potentially, you know, lower the escape velocity from a data well. You know, you you basically say, I, you know, if I if I have to move all of the data to some central location or or exchange it with some partner, you know, that's um, that's more costly in just you know pure amount being moved, um, the length of time it takes. So there are lots of measures of of you know what it costs me to you know kind of escape the data well. From, you know where it's initially stored. If you can move selectively the metadata that is important for the request, whether it's sharing, whether it's consolidating, get, understanding the entire kind of operation of this this federated group of you know could be edge devices or or processes. You know this is the way you. Um, you effectively deal with data gravity. It's the, you know, it's smart federation to Joanne's point. 
and and smart federation probably uses some form of data virtualization and that means i'm generating yeah kind of a specific kind of synopsis a a a specialized kind of how would you how would you describe it it it's it's the way you get it it's the way it's 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 effectively saying i'm going to move only what's absolutely vital for the for the task at hand and it's a way of mm-hmm. dealing with data crafting well i mean that has some upsides right because yeah, then you can sure. try and position it in a way that you don't have data latency that you do have more contextualization you can use the semantic model uh blah 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 blah. i could go on and on about that but for those three reasons and also risk mitigation and cost to tie the business side into it that might be a future state well right like i think that i i think that the whole idea of and i know it's controversial data lakes is overblown because they are becoming not only deeper and deeper swamps, but dirtier and dirtier swamps. Well, that's why you don't have people continuing to use kind of a pure data lake approach. It's, you know, yeah. people talking about data lake houses and so forth. The whole point is when before you before you throw data into the data lake, you um you cleanse it, you take a look at it, you you then all arguably you even take a look to say you know is this data already in here somewhere or is there something close to what i'm about to place uh, into the data lake that's already here and you know should there be a uh, some sort of a deduplication do you tag it do you categorize it on ingress as opposed Mm -hmm. to just throwing it in there and searching for it after the fact. Otherwise, you're, you know, this is exactly right. You're, you create swamps. They're, they're a stopgap measure. They are a stopgap measure. Exactly. Because ultimately you're going to go, you're going to end up finding yourself returning to the whole notion of a, of a data mart, you know, uh, that you're going to pull out of that data lake and, and use. And that's a kind of a nicely curated, selected, body corpus of of data that I'm using for a specific purpose, a specific application. And if I have to pull it from a variety of different different locations, different data lakes, the way I want to do that is the most efficient as possible. And this is where this whole notion of federating it, moving, moving data, moving metadata as opposed to primary data starts to come in and and that's the way you deal with this phenomenon that 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 Macquarie, you know, first kind of characterized as data gravity. I, you know, maybe I'm old, but to me, this sounds like the <laughs> the the. Don't the precursor there. to what what became data warehouses and have now been extended to football fields and now we're calling them lakes and the problem is still the same 
We still need better schema and better ways of thinking about all of the data in all of the silos that are now considered legacy and technical debt, just to be able to go back to square one and say, we took the round peg and we tried to shove it into the square hole and it didn't fit. So now our new version is called an ellipse. Maybe we'll get it right this time. Well, I mean, to, to your point, one of the things that you know becomes pretty clear, at least for me, is that um, kind of indiscriminate, care, you know, indiscriminate kind of collection of data without a purpose, without some some pre-processing, without some categorization, without tagging, uh, is you know that is. That's the definition of a of a form of we'll call it data debt. It's it is a it's it's tech it's technical debt of a yep. very specific kind. And in all of this, what you also have, it it's basically like saying, fine, I want to get an index of data gravity, but I also want to know how much of the data in that data pool and that data well is dark data, data that in there that I can't find, data that I never use, data that's just taken up space and costing me um, costing me money. A tremendous amount of dollars. Yeah, no, listen, we talked about dark data, one of my favorite topics, a while ago. And I know we were supposed to revisit that topic, but that was along the lines of metadata. And I'm beginning to, you know, no pun intended, gravitate more towards the idea that the next iteration of all of this should really be focused on the metadata. Get the, uh, you know, we, we have to get that ontology done and figure yeah. out how to make that work because if only 27% of the data that's being stored is actually being used, and this is cross industry, not just in manufacturing. The low is 19, the high is 31. Why are we spending all of this time, effort, and money? It's reminiscent of the old saw about marketing. You know, the head of marketing says, I'm spending a million dollars on marketing. And, you know, I know that half of it is really effective. I just don't know which half. Right. So, the idea that you know I'm I'm holding on to data in case I might need it later. I'm you know I you're I think you're dead on with this. And this is it. Let's put it this way: we need, in addition to just a kind of a raw data gravity kind of metric, you need some other indices, some other metrics that basically uh, assess the quality or the the value of what's in a data collection in a data well and if um data continues to build up in a in a one of these data wells strictly because there's other data that's already in there uh that's the recipe for disaster that is actually a definition of a kind of technical debt that you know is going to come back we'll never and, get and haunt you. You you will never you will never escape the data well, right? So yeah. 
it just it just goes more and more to the point that um, on ingress, I mean, this is one of these shift left conversations, you know, as early in the process as possible, you need to do some, you know, some filtration, you need to do some processing, you need to do some cleansing. Um, there are any number of things that you want to try to do to improve the quality of the data that's going into this data lake, into these data wells. Without that, um, you know, we're we're basically going to swamp ourselves. That's a depressing conversation. <laughs> so if I may offer something interesting, and this may or may not be like on point, but the last uh, the last company I worked with uh, has a distributed file system. And we were, you know, really dealing with these kinds of issues and solved it mostly from a metadata perspective, um, using AI to determine what data needs to stay at the edge and which needs to be in, you know, the cloud and blah, 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 all that stuff. The things that are a little bit above my pay grade sometimes, but, and primarily in manufacturing or uh, construction where people needed to collaborate on these huge files like in CAD and across the globe. Um, but I think there's a, there's an emotion, there's a governance issue to it as well as a, sometimes a nostalgic issue from a company's perspective. So a little story, um, we were working with Victoria's Secret and they were spending an inordinate amount of money to uh, store videos from ages ago. Like, and it was all very, Kind of nostalgic, right? They were never going to touch them again, but they were not going to ever use them either. So I, I think there's like a there's not only an architecture uh, perspective to this conversation, but there's also a sort of you know I have a whole storage area of things that I keep that are nostalgic to me that I'm probably never ever going to look at again in my life. And I think that's a that's a component. And then some of our customers needed to store data for, you know, seven years because of government, you know, things. Regulation. Yeah. Regulatory. Regulatory is a better word, right? Data governance yeah. is. So anyway, if that's, if that's helpful at all to the conversation, that's, that's what I can well, add. Well, it is because, you know, I actually, I was, I, I, the last little while I was in the hospital, so I, I've been out of touch, but just before I got sick, I was speaking with a, a client and I got a little frustrated and I said, Tim, you're a data hoarder. You don't have to, you, exactly. you don't need a closet. You don't need a bigger house. You're a data hoarder. And he said, well, yeah, but some of it is like from, you know, 15 years ago when, when we bought such and such a company. And I said, the government is not making you keep these records any longer. Yeah. Right. And mm -hmm. the answer was, no, of course not. You know, it's it's ancient stuff. We don't. I, but every once in a while, I want to know that it's there. And I said, but that's data hoarding and that's yeah. costing you. When I broke it down into numbers and yeah. showed him exactly what was what and what it was costing them. It was like, OK, get rid of it. Just uh, I said, I'll give you the honor, you know, have your IT guy set it up in such a way that you can be the one that hits the delete key yeah. uh, or the cancel all or whatever and, and stop. And the, the, the argument that I've heard come back from 
the data hoarders, a few of them, has been, I would have agreed with you had it not been for the fact that right now, with all of these new machine learning data sets, mm-hmm. this data might, in fact, be longitudinal. There's enough history. There's enough. It's, it doesn't have just nostalgia value. It actually has yeah. training value. And, you know, do I want to, you know, blow it up, you know, permanently and, you know, let it, you know, fly off into space? Or do I simply want to reduce the the cost of keeping it around uh, but retrievable somewhere? It's, you know, it's kind of creating yet another kind of layer of archival storage. Um, right. And I think, you know, there's some merit in the argument. It's like, geez, um, if in fact we have enough consistently gathered data over a long enough period of time, do we not have something that can be used for some kinds of uh, machine learning? And the answer I, is maybe we do. So, yeah. so but Joanne, I apologize for interjecting here, but we're closing at the top of the hour. Um, yes. Yeah, has had his hand patiently raised here. I'm not sure if he still has a point he would like to make uh, before we wrap up, but I do have to jump off oh. in two and a half minutes and shut down the bridge here. All right. I'll, I'll be quick then. Uh, just uh, two hot takes. One is uh, with regards to what uh, Rich what, what was commenting. Yes, uh, data hoarding is it's okay in, in my book. Um, data hoarding in warm storage is not okay. Like it, it should be in cold storage. Uh, so it doesn't consume any other resources just than, other than space. Um, and then going back to what uh, Diane mentioned regarding governance and, and regulatory compliance, uh, it got me thinking that um, that is one of the benefits of a data lake in that it makes it much easier to audit who accessed the data. Uh, yeah. And that's a valid yeah. point. I mean, yeah. the only point that I was going to add was I don't disagree with you, Rich, but I think given the price points and the time involved, even for data scientists using or creating those training models, if it's more than five years old, the world has changed so dramatically, what real value is there going to be in using that data for training? And I can't think of any. The only thing that I can... The only thing that I can think of is is uh, our kind of natural processes that um, that occur over kind of a, a a different timeline. If you talk about weather data, if you talk yeah. about, uh, I mean, there is one place where if I had um, good longitudinal weather data that goes back a long ways. I might have a better chance of building good predictive models. That's those are the kinds of ones that I need. Yeah, I agree. I gotta run, I gotta jump as well. Me too. So thank you. Bye all. Cheers, everyone. Appreciate all your time. Cheers. Thank you.
It's interesting to me to see how much these subjects interweave. Our conversations about metadata, um, which we've discussed several times and we'll continue to discuss on the podcast, really impact how we think and should be thinking about data gravity. Uh, and I hope that you will consider coming back and joining us as we do what Joanne was suggesting, which is defining metadata constructs better so that they can be used uh, more, more aggressively in data analytics, data management, data security, uh, and the dreaded data mesh. If you want more information, please uh, come join us. Find out our whole schedule at the2030.cloud, and I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.